when I started developing these symptoms of psychosis, I just started hiding everything. I didn't want to talk about any of it. Right. I just wanted it to go away. And so I started having thoughts of death and suicide, and I didn't even tell the psychologist I was seeing every two weeks because I was really embarrassed and I was really ashamed. And I really just felt like one day I could wake up and it would all go away. Um, but it doesn't work that way. So can you imagine what it would be like to, to stay awake for three to four days in a row? Not because you were trying to, but because you literally were so massively filled with energy in a deeply manic state that you could not shut your eyes. And then swinging from there into a violent crash into a deep, deep depression. Well, this is one of the things that was experienced on a pretty regular basis by today's guest, Ross Sabo, who was diagnosed at a pretty young age um, with bipolar disorder. And today's conversation gets into not just his dance, his struggle, and the way that he's moved into his diagnosis and then his life, but also the general conversation around mental disorder, around all sorts of stress, around the way that our brains work and the way that society and those closest to us often either move into us and help us or completely abandon us and how to live in the world when you're different. So um, powerful episode, powerful and very real conversation. I'm Jonathan Fields. This is Good Life Project. So we're hanging out as always in uh, TOPHQ, aka my living room in the Upper West Side. And you're just cruising in. We were just talking about that for the the uh, triathlon and, and some other stuff. Um, we came together through a mutual friend and somebody who's actually been uh, been uh, on TLP in in a past life. Um, Aaron Weed, aka Weed, which <laughs> <laughs> people take in various different ways. Um, but you're uh, you currently? I mean, you hang out in LA. That's your full time. Yeah, I live in LA. Right. Yeah. What do you actually do there? So it doesn't sound like you're actually there a whole lot. No, I'm not. I'm the uh, CEO of the Human Power Project. Right. And my company creates mental health curriculum for people of all ages. So my curric my first wave of curriculum rolls out this fall to 25,000 high school and college students. Wow. And uh, when I'm not creating curriculum, I'm speaking. Right. At high schools and colleges and corporations around the country. So sitting across from me, you, you, you appear to be a fairly young guy. Um, and this is a fairly heavy, intense topic. Mm -hmm. So, so there's, there's, there's history here. This is not just, yeah. Hey, I, you know, I majored in psych and this seems like a cool thing. This is like deep and personal. So take me back a little bit and tell me. Tell me where this all comes from for you. Sure. Yeah. I always, I always joke, you don't become a, a well-known mental health advocate because you had like the best life, right? No. You had to have gone through, <laughs> through something at some point. Uh, mental illness runs in my family pretty heavily on both sides. And I actually visited my oldest brother in a psychiatric ward when I was 11. Mm. Uh, he had an episode of bipolar disorder when he was a sophomore at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, but luckily, they caught his early, and he accepted treatment and accepted his diagnosis, and was able to, you know, take some time off from school, but eventually go back and and graduate and move on with his life. Right. So, tell me, break it down a little bit. I, I think I understand what bipolar is, but but I'm sure I don't actually okay. really get it. So I mean, because 
how do you what is how do you know if somebody's going through uh, like what actually manifests? Sure. Well, I was I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder when I was sixteen. Okay. And what was happening to me was I would have these massive mood swings that were uncontrollable. You know, sometimes people are like, "Oh, I'm so bipolar." Because yeah. they like woke up early <laughs> or like, you know, they had a mood swing one day. Right. That's not bipolar. Bipolar this is this uncontrollable mood swing where it goes between two poles, a manic high and a depressive low. So when I was 16, I started not uh, being able to sleep for three or four days in a row, but not ever being tired. You know, I'd lay down to go to sleep at night and it was like my mind was just constantly racing eight to nine thoughts a minute. And I'd reach these feelings of euphoria like nothing could stop me nothing could bring me down and then my moods would change you know after uh either a few days or a few weeks of being manic it would switch to the depression right which is you know the polar opposite you can't get out of bed you have no energy you don't uh do the things you enjoy anymore you have a lot of anger so i mean when you're in each of those diametrically opposite Mm -hmm. um phases or just states of mind are you aware of the fact that you're in this sort of like one really strong representation of some sort of of i don't know whether is it a disease a disorder a condition how do you actually a, I, name I, it? I call it a disorder right you know, it's like a, a behavioral disorder really. right so from the inside looking out are you actually aware not in those on? first episodes right you know when they first hit you it's, it's much like anything else you're trying to figure out what's happening and you need a break you need a time period of uh, almost normalcy after those episodes to really see like, oh my gosh, what, what was happening? You know, it's like a bad breakup. You know, after that breakup, you're like just trying to get through your day. You're not yourself. You're struggling. Right. And then after that period, you look back and you're like, who was I hmm. after that breakup? It's similar to mental illness in the sense that when you get a period of normalcy and look back, you're like, what was I doing? Like right. that was really, really extreme. So is the fact you mentioned that um, your little brother, um, my oldest brother, or your yeah, oldest, I'm brother, the youngest of three boys, was was diagnosed when he was eleven. You think? No, I was eleven. Oh, you were. He 11. was eighteen. Okay. Yeah. Um, were you? So when you're eleven and you see what's going on, I mean, what's the experience for you at that point? Just seeing what's happening with your older brother, and did you actually understand it? Was there a family conversation about it? I think kids have more of like an innocent view of the stuff like that. Like the way my dad told me was really traumatic. He was like, "Your brother's in the hospital," and you know, all I could understand, all I could really think was, "Did he break his arm? Did he break his leg?" Uh, like the regular kids, right? Yeah. And my dad was like, "No." And then they, he explained that he was in the psychiatric ward, and I just didn't know what it meant. Right when I I first saw my brother in the psychiatric ward, I was relieved because he didn't have an oxygen mask or right. there wasn't like an, an IV thing right. or broken somehow. Right. Uh, but he didn't know when, when I first saw him, he didn't know who we were. Oh, no kidding. And he didn't really know. Been kind of terrifying. It was. And, and on the way out of the hospital that day, everyone in my family was crying and I wasn't. And my mom was like, you know, it's okay to cry. And I was like, well, if he's not going to die, this must be something he can he can get through. Right. This so must like, be something. What do you take to from. just fix it? Right. Yeah. And luckily his path to uh, finding what worked best for him was much quicker than, than mine. So it gave me hope. Like I saw, okay, you could have this really, really extreme disorder, but you could still go back and function. Um, my disorder, you know, they all manifest differently. They all have different tentacles. They all have different 
extremes inside those extremes and and it hits each person differently you you mentioned that this actually runs in your family so Mm -hmm. was this in your parents generation it was and in um it was in my grandparents uh but it was mainly anxiety depression and substance uh alcoholism on both sides Mm -hmm. uh uncles grandparents things like that so that it's it's not so much the the manifestation of the particular condition but it's Mm -hmm. something I, I'm trying to sort of like understand. It's like is it's not so much that bipolar runs in your family, but right. there's some wiring, there's some genetic wiring in the brain that leads to manifestation, which I guess hap- unfolds differently in each person, each generation. Right. But that whatever that it, like that origin point is seems to be heritable. Right. Yeah. yeah. Or it's a, you know we say it's a biological predisposition. You have okay. a biological predisposition to developing cancer or heart right. problems. You can find people who you know, think they're the healthiest people in the world running a marathon, yeah. but they have a biological predisposition to a heart disease. Right. Um, and then there's environmental factors. So for me, I had the biological predisposition. Then it's also possible the coping mechanisms because of those disorders were also passed down through my parents to me. Mm-hmm. You know, my dad did not grow up in a home where anyone talked about emotions. My mom grew up in a home where women weren't supposed to cry. They were supposed to be strong and be there for the family. So there wasn't a, a level of emotional expression in my, my family at all. And that kind of compounds a uh, mental disorder because now you have this severe thing and you don't, you've never even started an outlet of expressing your emotions to, yeah. to cope with it. But which is so interesting though, because like you said, when you, you guys all left the hospital after your brother mm-hmm. was diagnosed and everybody else is crying, but you in a mm-hmm. family that generally never cries mm-hmm. and that didn't trigger you to say something's really wrong. You were still kind of like, Oh, well, you know, it's fixable. I can't see anything on the outside. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think they cried in big moments, you know, and they were in a rough spot that when my brother was in the psychiatric ward, my dad's dad was in the hospital. My mom's mom was was really dying. She only had a couple months to live. So they were literally going hospital, the hospital, the hospital. It's just everything. Yeah, Yeah. it was a really hard time. Do you remember the first um, time that you experienced um, some sort of manic or depressive state that you can where you're like, you know, and, and then you came full circle to that place where you sort of baseline mm-hmm. again and you're like right, what just happened i can remember the end of my junior year of of high school um you know it was the it was kind of the this time period where i really did just feel invincible like i remember walking down a hallway and feeling like if I ran through a wall, nothing could stop me. And remember, I still remember that feeling like, what is happening right now? Like, why do I feel so high? Mm. But once it escalates, you lose that sense that it's going that route. And even today, because once you're diagnosed with bipolar disorder, it never leaves you. Today, I can start to feel the tentacles of those manic episodes. And then I have to really take care of myself and, and make sure I don't go into the extremes of it but i still remember that first time and then what happened was i just started binge drinking and so then i was drinking you know a case of beer a night or a bottle of vodka or a bottle of rum to just stop the thoughts Mm. to stop the mood swings to stop the emotions i started doing that when i was 16 and so it got you know it got really to a place where that became the coping mechanism And so even after I was diagnosed and even after I was placed on medications and all these other things, I would always turn back to alcohol 
in my most desperate times because that was kind of the first way I learned to cope with it. My brother never drank. He never did drugs. He never did any of those things before he was diagnosed. For me, the coping mechanisms I was creating were much more destructive. Hmm. Did he, did your brother do any of those things after he was no. diagnosed? He, so he, so he had a different path. He just had a different path. Yeah. And, then, and because of the pathways in our brain, because of the neural pathways and the connections we make, uh, in terms of coping with all emotions, those first pathways you laid down in terms of understanding your mental health disorder are really critical because they're the ones you're going to turn to uh, kind of the most right. initially. Because, you know, the longer you use a neural pathway, right. it just the, the more automatic more it becomes, right? right? Yeah. It myelinates and now so was it's it, your behavior. Was the drinking about, um, was it in response to both the euphoria and the depression? It could be, yeah. Because so, with the euphoria, you're not sleeping huh. and you're up all the time and no one else is, you know, right. even in high school, even in the summer, you know, that's when most high school students are binge sleeping, where they're just like, right. I want to sleep the whole summer. Um, you're, you are aware that like, you know, no one else is awake or, or you're at a party and you feel that invincibility and you're at a party where alcohol is being used and you're like, watch how much I can drink. I can drink so much more than you. I can go so much more extreme than you, which is really frightening in a way. Right. So were your friends aware of what was going on? We, we've had this conversation. I'm still <laughs> close friends with a lot of my friends from high school. Yeah. And when like, you know, when I started the path to advocacy and when I was speaking around the country and my, especially when uh, my book came out, they were, you know, they're all in the book. They said that, you know, they could tell something was wrong, but they're 16 year old boys. Hmm. Like, what are we going to do? Sit down and talk about it? Are we going to like sit down as 16 year old dudes and say like, Hey man, you know, you're out of control. Your emotions are really strong. It just, they were concerned, but they really didn't know what to do yeah. and they didn't really know what to say. Um, and I think that they thought if they just stayed close to me, that was something. Like at least it was better than me being alone or them not knowing right. where I was, what I was doing. Meh. So when you actually, um, you said you started treatment, I guess when you're. Yeah, I was diagnosed right? when I was sixteen. Right. So what? Yeah. What's? How do you? Um, how do you treat it? Well, you know, there's there's a couple of ways to treat all mental health disorders, and the first one is usually medication. Um, the tricky thing with medication is finding the right dosage and the right medications that a person responds to. Mm. Um, then other treatments are therapy. The most effective treatment is cognitive behavioral therapy. Cognitive behavioral therapy is really kind of what I was describing already. You become more aware of the behaviors you're using and you try to replace them with more effective things. So I had a psychiatrist who was putting me on meds. And a psychologist who was saying, we're putting you on this medication to lessen your anxiety. Mm. What causes you anxiety? What? Do, how do you react when you have anxiety? How can we change those reactions to anxiety so that you're not reaching the extremes of it? Um, that's the most effective treatment is some right. level of medication with some level of therapy. Well, so what's the... Um What's the connection between anxiety and bipolar? So anxiety is, for me at least, kind of the main trigger f for my anger, for my depression, for my uh, – I, I went through severe anger uh, – sorry, I didn't mention that. I went through severe anger control problems. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, 
I also had uh, my diagnosis eventually changed to bipolar disorder with anger control problems and psychotic features. And I had severe hallucinations and delusions. And um, that was all in high school. So at 17, my diagnosis changed to this other place. So when, where's the first onset of the hallucinations and and the And now that I, that I remember. Uh, So I got diagnosed when I was 16 and then by 17, uh, I was still taking meds, but I was drinking much more than I was taking meds. And if you drink on psychiatric meds, it's terrible. It makes the meds ineffective. It's really dangerous, especially now. Uh, we see so many people die with prescription drugs and, and alcohol abuse. Uh, and so in the summer before my senior year of high school, uh, it started off with me just having kind of, I'd be asleep, I'd wake up and I'd see someone in my room and then, um, you know, that you can brush off as like, okay, well, maybe I was asleep, maybe I wasn't. And then I would start hearing my name being called, like, you know, I'd be outside and I'd just hear this Ross, Ross, and, you know, nothing was there. And then it just kept building and it would build to um, people running by me and yelling my name or, you know, eventually I started hearing voices telling me to kill myself and to kill my friends and to kill my family and uh, having hallucinations of people chasing me or popping up in the rearview mirror. And then, then I did stop drinking at that point where I was like, this is, this is too much because it's crippling because it's the most, I think, vulnerable thing where you're alone and you start hearing these voices and, uh, it really just shuts you down. You know, you don't want to believe them. You don't want to hear them, but it, 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 it keeps happening. And so then they'll, then they started changing my medications and changing everything else. Um, but shortly after that, I went into a horrible state of depression. Was that sort of a rebound of this or a shift in the medication or is that just what happened? So at 17, when I started developing these symptoms of psychosis, I just started hiding everything. Mm. I didn't want to talk about any of it. Right. I just wanted it to go away. And so I started having thoughts of death and suicide and I didn't even tell the psychologist I was seeing every two weeks because I was really embarrassed and I was really ashamed. And I really just felt like one day I could wake up and it would all go away. Um, but it doesn't work that way. And so in my senior year of high school, I was hospitalized for attempting to take my own life, um, in January, my senior year. And at the time, you know, I was class president and varsity basketball player and, um, you know, in every student activity and had a high GPA and, was volunteering everywhere. So on the outside, it looked like everything was fine, but I was really a mess. Hmm. So when that happens, um, does what you're going through become more public at that point? So when I was hospitalized, uh, I was in there for a while. And um, when I came out, everything changed. You know, when I came out, um, I went from being the guy everyone liked, everyone knew, to all of a sudden I was just that loony, wacko, quack, psycho, the crazy kid. Um, I had a lot of rumors about me. I grew up in a very small town in Pennsylvania and, uh, it's hard. It's hard because you already feel so ashamed of what you're going through. And then when those things happen, you, it's really hard to, to stomach it. Yeah. I mean, how, so how do you, how do you move through that? And what was your approach or, uh, so two months after I got out of the hospital, one of my teachers brought a psychologist into a classroom to talk about patients he was treating. And as the psychologist talked about the patients he was treating, every student in that classroom started laughing. And I was really kind of shocked, you know, um, I was really angry. And so I grabbed my teacher and I took him into the hallway and I said, this isn't funny to me. 
And he looked down at me in a really rural Pennsylvania way. And he said, well, what are you going to do about it? And I said, let me speak. If they're going to laugh at this, if they're not going to understand this, then let me at least say what I've been through. And uh, he said, I could speak. And so two weeks later, I stood up in that classroom and I spoke for the first time. How was that? It was really, it was really one of the worst experiences uh, that I'd gone through. Not because of what happened, but I'm a fighter, obviously, and I'm very stubborn. So I was like, oh, let me speak. But then when I had to speak, it's like, whoa. I mean, your, your average person just like speaking on, right. you know, reading an essay in front of a class right. at any age, let alone, you know, like late teens is terrifying. It's one of the biggest fears for anybody. But for you actually being that level of vulnerable, it must have been. Well, I sweated through my clothes and uh, I <laughs> held on to that podium, white knuckled and I shook. Uh, but when I finished, nobody laughed. And I think it helps people understand. And it actually opened a lot of doors in that classroom for people to share about family members or other things. Um, and I, I saw that as an opportunity to really educate people. Because this wasn't a time period where people were talking about mental illness in a, in a big way. And from the very beginning, when I first started speaking, I never wanted it to be about mental illness. I wanted it to be about mental health. Because I saw, what I saw happening was these psychologists were coming in and all they're presenting is the most extreme model. You know, this is someone with schizophrenia and this is someone with bipolar disorder and this is someone with depression. But if you're an average high school student, you're not going through that. Mm -hmm. So you don't relate to it. You don't see the ties to it. So what I wanted to really do was explain mental health from a perspective that affects all of us. Not just because, you know, 20 to 25% of people have a mental health disorder, but because someone who's stressed out needs mental health as much as someone who has bipolar disorder. Mm. That I wasn't the outcast. I shouldn't have been the one who was, you know, um, just viewed so differently for what I was going through. We all needed mental health. There were kids binge drinking with me who didn't have bipolar disorder. There were kids, you know, racing their cars with me, driving drunk that didn't have a diagnosis. And so that was kind of the easily the the kind of PBS after school special moment of like, yeah. this is how he started speaking. Right. You know, well, it's kind of, it's kind of like, you know, um, you know, like Joseph Campbell, the abyss, you know, it's like mm-hmm. we all have one. Yeah. You know, it's different for everyone. You know, like there's the rabbit hole and we've all got them. It's just, you know. They, they're all different for each individual. And so yeah. how do you, you know, stay on the right side of it? Well, and I wish I could say that that moment f- f- helped my mental health. The reality was what I went through after high school was much worse. I went away to college and relapsed with bipolar disorder and had to go home. Um, I had my stomach pumped from alcohol poisoning. I uh, continued to abuse alcohol for the next four years until I got to a point where I realized I was either going to continue those behaviors and die or I was going to have to change. And and that's when I really started getting more control over bipolar disorder and really making the leap for my own mental health. But that doesn't just come from advocacy. Yeah. Was there a moment that made you make that big change? There was. I, uh, I passed out for 22 hours one night after drinking, um, you know, binge drinking vodka and, and other shots and things like that. And, uh, when I woke up, like I passed out one night at two in the morning and I woke up the next day and my clock said 12. But when I looked outside, it was dark and it was midnight of the next day. And it was just like, you know, what are you doing? Um, 
you keep doing this to yourself. You just keep living in pretty much denial that uh, I needed to treat bipolar disorder differently. I was a functional mess up. I could get good grades. I could work. I could do all these other things and make everyone think everything was okay. But inside, I was just a nightmare, just yeah. destroying myself. And so that was the night where I was like, you have to change this. And um, you have to accept that you have bipolar disorder. And you have to accept that you have all these terrible ways of treating yourself. And the hardest thing for me to accept was that I really hated myself. That the years of uncontrollable emotions and events had led to this horrible place of self-hatred. And if you hate yourself, it doesn't matter what your treatment is. It doesn't matter what people think about you. You don't care enough about yourself to want to even try and get better. What was your, what was your brother like during this time? Like, did you guys, did you guys compare notes at all? So what was tough was my brother decided he didn't want to talk to our family anymore when I was 16. Um, and so he left the family when I was 16. And I think that would have happened right after I got right before I got diagnosed. So I don't even think he knew um, at that point that I was even diagnosed. And I searched him down and found him and we were able to work as a family to bring him back after I was on the road to recovery. So we can compare notes now. Yeah. But in my worst years, I didn't have uh, him to talk to. Right. So this, actually, before we move on, I wanted, you said something that um, I think is an interesting thing to explore. You said when, when you know the professionals, the psychiatrists were coming, and they would talk about like the extreme cases of somebody who has schizophrenia, or somebody who has bipolar. It's interesting. A couple of years ago, um, I I was working with somebody in a program, a training program we were running, and um, and she shared a story about her mom who had uh, schizophrenia, mm-hmm. and apparently like very pretty severe. At one point, I, I I said you know like I use I, I phrase it as your mom is schizophrenic, right. And she's like, no. She's like, yeah. do not. She's like, you don't do that in in this community. She's like, everybody does that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, and by doing that, you're making like it's like a noun, like that defines her. It's right. Like, no, she's living with schizophrenia, or she has schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. And I had this really mixed emotion in response to it because, on the one hand, like, okay, I get that, but then when you look at all these other labels that we give people, you know, like you're black. You're mm-hmm. white, you're Jewish, you're Italian. We don't say you're living with blackness or you're living mm-hmm. with like lighter skin or you're living, you know, as a Jew. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's really, it seemed that it's really just when there's a negative association with it, there's this real hesitancy to include that as sort of like the noun of you are, but almost anything else, it's it's okay. And I was like, I was struggling with that to a certain extent. I think the difference with with that example that you're giving is uh, mental health disorders are a a condition. They're not a a stable trait, right? You know, so like maybe that's what it was about, right? And so you always want to use people first language. Uh, Mental health disorders are covered under the American with Disabilities Act. You know, we don't say people are disabled anymore. We say they have a physical disability or something like that. And the reason I always say that I have bipolar disorder is because it's not something that defines my life. Like I'm a person who has this disorder. I can manage it. I can work on it and I can find a way to balance my life with it. You don't have to worry about that as much with your race or your gender. You're not trying to necessarily overcome 
your race or your gender as much as yeah. although you know, some there, there will be people that argue pretty fiercely against right. that <laughs> well no i understand that yeah. but what i'm saying is what you're trying to overcome in those situations are racism and right. what you're trying to overcome in those situations are discrimination right. for um something that you can't control something you were born with and wh why you are born with and uh, have these disposition predispositions for mental illness um you know it's a it's something again that you can manage and balance. It's something yeah. that you can work on. So yeah, I agree with you. Overcoming um, is a is a tough word to use when we're discussing race yeah. and ethnicity. And, and it's also it was just it was the first time that I had really when I was corrected. It was just the first time that I actually thought. And I, I consider myself to be a pretty open, pretty right. non judgmental, mindful person. Yeah. And it just made me start to think about it, like how I'm sort of like defining people and using labels, um, yeah. just all around. Um, mm -hmm. And whether, you know, like, is this, you know, is this, a, you know, sarcastic New Yorker versus actors, oh, this PC, you know. Right. And right. they're like, no, but like, let me really think about what's going on here, you right. know, and, um, and what is appropriate and, and what's the language that I use on a day to day basis. And, mm -hmm. uh, and, and, um, am I, am I putting somebody in a box by using language that's really not mm -hmm. a box that's, you know, appropriate to put them in? Yeah. And, and there are people in the community who want to own their, bipolar disorder or anything and they will lead with they'll say i'm bipolar and you know that's everyone's choice um but for me i have found much better success in being who i am managing my bipolar disorder than letting it overwhelm and control me uh, and i think what we're seeing now is we're getting to a place where you can find a a, a healthy way to to um, balance these things where right. you can find a healthy way to really work on them. Um, we're not stuck in the let's cut out a part of somebody's brain as a way to treat mental illness, you know, and, and the treatments have really advanced and the, the future's bright for, for understanding mental illness. So you have that 22 hour blackout incident and that mm -hmm. becomes this inciting incident to say something must change. So mm -hmm. where do you go from there? The first thing I had to do was learn to like myself. You know, if, if, if you, like I said earlier, if you hate yourself, it doesn't matter what your treatment is. It doesn't matter what, uh, people think about you. You don't care enough about yourself to want to even make that change. So what I had to do was really find one thing that I liked about myself and, you know, use that in my darkest times. But does that come to you? Autumn? I mean, does this come to you because you've been through years of therapy? Yeah. Or do you wake up and say, you know, like, I'm going back to a therapist and the therapist is like, no, this is where we need to start. I had a therapist who helped guide me on that. Right. But you have to do the work outside of therapy. Yeah. It's it's great to get those ad ad advice and those tips, but you still have to do that work. Right. And so... So what was the one thing? It was that I did, I really did enjoy giving back to others. I'd volunteered for as long as I can remember in my life. But when I was doing that, I used to always tell myself, well, that's just a show. That's not really who you are. Hmm. You're, you know, you're a loser. You're a, a failure. You're a mess up. This isn't who you are. So I had to start embracing that I actually did enjoy giving back to others and feeling connected to something that was, you know, larger than myself. And so I continued to volunteer all through that time, but really take time to appreciate it and, and soak it in. And then once you find one thing you like about yourself, you can build it up and um, get out of that hole of self-hatred. But even after you do that, I still had to deal with bipolar disorder with anger control problems and psychotic features right? and a horrible alcohol abuse problem. And so to do that, I put myself in a system 
where I woke up at the same time every day and went to bed at the same time every night. Um, so that at least I was getting enough sleep and at least I was trying to take this thing that throws you in flux constantly and put some more controls on it. And so then I stopped drinking. I stopped smoking weed. I stopped smoking cigarettes. I started exercising. I started eating healthy. Um, you know, I stopped uh, drinking caffeine. I stopped drinking soda. I changed my diet. And I also, what I really had to do was change my coping mechanisms. Instead of being triggered and letting myself have that anxiety rise and going to mania or depression or psychosis or anger, I needed to find ways to really um, identify it earlier and change the way that I was coping with it, whether that was writing or talking about it or exercising or just, you know, finding a way to find that balance. I had to start chipping away at it. Um, and it takes a long time. Yeah. And it takes a long time before you get those controls where you can spot those warning signs before they, before they control you. So does, and at this time, are, are, are you also on, are you on medication for life? Um, some people are. You know, I, because I speak to so many people, I get the, uh, this question a lot of like, what is your specific treatment? My my goal in speaking right now is not to tell everyone to do what I did. Right. Yeah. It's to, to find their own path and not be afraid of it. So I'm still in treatment for sure. But my treatment is much more weighted towards cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm. And it's much more focused on changing my coping mechanisms. And that's constant because right. bipolar disorder is not a diagnosis that just goes away. And you have to constantly be aware of it. Now, I will say the more years you have identifying triggers and the more years you have using effective coping mechanisms, the less you have to think about waking up. Like, you know, there were, you know, a few years there where I had to wake up every day and be like, I have bipolar disorder. What am I going to do to make sure that I take care of myself and I don't go into an episode and I don't do these things? I don't have to think about that as much now. I've been doing that for for over 10 years of so you've got at this point you just kind of built the structures and the awareness into your day-to-day life yeah. it's fairly automatic could you say yeah, that it, it is fairly automatic and, and you do have to be careful during certain times change loss and lack of sleep are the three big things that can bring about any uh symptoms of a mental health disorder um, but i've been tested you know uh i was in the peace corps from 2010 to 2012 and the year i left the peace corps I lived on three different continents and seven different homes and went through the end of a 10 year relationship. Um, so everything changed yeah. everything. I had no I job. Mean, I had no money. I had no anything, which is so fascinating because if you, if you know that like the triggers are change, loss mm-hmm. and lack of sleep, you know, and then you go into this scenario, it's like the peace Corps. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you, <laughs> that's bad. I mean, that's sort of I like, mean, yeah, that you're opening up the door to you the are. possibility of all three triggers happening all the time every right. day. But you, you know, at that point, I'd felt like I'd built myself up enough, uh, built myself up up enough where I could handle it. Yeah. And the Peace Corps made me write a ten page essay on my coping mechanisms oh, before I could join to see, you know, if I was okay. And I had to get clearance from every psychiatrist that ever saw me right. uh, to get in. And I was shocked in the Peace Corps. I had two moments where I was like, you really have done the work here. Um, the first moment was we were in training and I was in Botswana, which is in Southern Africa, just above South Africa. Um, we were in training and training is like going to school every day, but you're adults for like uh, eight hours a day and you have no control of your schedule and everything else. And the first day that people got to be able to drink, I mean, it was like 
<laughs> the party. Right. And every cell in my body was like, you are not drinking. You're not going to get drunk. You're not going to zone out. You're going to pay attention to what is happening here. You're in a massive change. You're not going to turn to this. And I, I, I didn't get drunk. I didn't, you know, I might have had a beer or two, but everything in my body was saying no. Um, and then unfortunately, uh, about a year in, um, not even a year in, I guess about eight months in, I got a call from my dad that my mom had breast cancer and I was, my village was 12 hours from a mat and a 12 hour bus ride from like a major airport. Like it wasn't mm -hmm. something I could go home for. And when I got that news, my initial response was to drink, you know, my, the second thought I had was to punch something. That's a whole other thing. And I didn't, you know, I sat down and I emailed, um, all my friends and I Skyped and, you know, I had people call me and I talked it out and I worked through it. And those were really good signs to me that I wasn't going back into repeating the same patterns I had for so many years with the disorder. Nah. It was interesting. You, <laughs> you used the word, um, earlier in a conversation, you start, you can start to feel the tentacles. Mm -hmm. Deconstruct that a little bit for me. I think so. I guess the best way I could explain it is you have pathways in your brain for all your behaviors, right? And I had drank to cope with my emotions for so long that um, those pathways are there. While I'm not using them in my brain, they're still there. That thing was as wide as the Mississippi River at some point. That pathway was so commonly used. And so when these things happen, um, and it doesn't even have to have an event like uh, as severe as I talked about, um, you could just wake up one day, like uh, even training for this New York City triathlon, there was a day where I was running like 10 miles and just started to feel that runner's high. And that euphoria is similar to the start of mania. It's not the same because mania goes beyond a runner's high and takes you to a different place. And so I can start to feel the kind of those pathways taking hold where it's like you're going up you're going up more than than you need to be. And that's when I really have to make sure that I sleep and that I, you know, figure out what's happening right now. Is it a change in life? Is it a lack of sleep issue? Is it anxiety? And the reality is anxiety has a pretty similar feeling in my body. Mm. That nervousness gets so much that it can, you know, really give you this 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 place of uh I guess I guess unknown. Uh, yeah, some unknown territory and uh luckily i'm able to identify that and just kind of take a step back and be like okay let's not let's not follow those pathways yeah. back into the mania i mean it's so interesting the way you describe that you know the runner's high sort of like creating mimicking a certain amount of that sensation of mania which is mm -hmm. sort of like the early stages you mm -hmm. know um which is you know people exercise very often just to feel that mm -hmm. they push themselves to a certain level of exertion right. just to feel that almost like you become addicted to that, you know, like the release of those chemicals just, right. and you've got like, you keep doing the behavior because you want to feel more and more of that. Whereas right. with you, it's actually a warning sign. You know, like, is mm -hmm. this a runner's high or is it, is it the, the triggering of something that will become something which I, where I really don't want to go. Yeah. And I would say the flip side of that is that exercise also probably keeps me away from nah. getting those those uncontrollable highs because I am giving my body a release. Right. I am getting those chemicals flowing through my brain. I am having a chance to uh, experience 
something. I'm not just sitting in a dark room and going through it. I'm giving my body an out and, yeah. and getting out there. And at the same time, I mean, the exercise is, you know, is actually phenomenally good form of therapy for anxiety yeah. and depression. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, the, the, um, John Rady's book, uh, Spark, I don't know if you've read mm -hmm. it at all, but tremendous yeah. book where Harvard trained psychiatrists basically wrote an entire book, which was a huge bestseller. Mm -hmm. The fundamental message was, you know, almost everything that we treat with pharmacology from, uh, you know, a mental disorder or state, um, anxiety, depression, OCD, all these things very often is as effectively treated with exercise. And I don't want to, I, I, mm -hmm. I would never make a blanket thing saying, like, no. don't take extra. Right. But Everybody's different. it's fascinating to actually see, you know, like he just laid out, he'd spent a whole book laying out the research mm -hmm. showing how like boom, 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 and how he started treating so many of his patients, yeah. not pharmacologically, but you know, um, even agoraphobia and things like mm -hmm. that. He would, he would use physicality. He would, he would drive people to malls at night and he would start at the far end of the parking lot and have them walk in the direction of the mall. So mm -hmm. physically walking because it would actually help release some of the anxiety right. while they're doing it. And they're moving closer and closer to the place of massive, you know, anxiety provocation, mm -hmm. the trigger. And then over a period of weeks or months, you know, he would start to have them walk faster. And then they literally, you know, end up sprinting to the front doors of the mall. And you know, the, it, he was astonished that this actually became a really effective form of therapy without ha having to put people on medication, which basically wiped out um, or, or substantially treated the anxiety around right. this phobia. But you know, I, what, I guess one of the questions that comes up for me also um, is that because I, I've certainly, I, nobody's alive you know, until midlife w without either experiencing something themselves or knowing plenty of people who have some level of struggle. And... Um, and one of the things that I've heard over time w with people is, well, yeah, like it helps me, you know, like not go to those dark places. But mm -hmm. at the same time, I feel like I'm kind of flatlined. Like I don't have the low lows and I don't have the high oh, highs. Are you talking about meds or? Yeah. What? Are you talking about medications? Yeah, with, with meds. Right. Um, you know, like, but, but it keeps me from the extremes. But mm -hmm. at the same time, it keeps me so far, you know, like that I don't feel like I'm really... Mm -hmm. experiencing the the full swing of what life is about. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's why therapy and, and meds can be such a good combination. Some, you know, I think the reality of the percentage of people who can find a good therapist and afford meds in this country is unfortunately low. And I mean, that's a big problem too, you know, yeah, the and money it, side of it. Yeah. Um, in some ways I was very privileged to be able to find cognitive behavioral therapy so young because then I could just start doing it without needing to check in or, you know, but if you're in this place of not understanding the diagnosis and your options are to feel flatlined or to be, you yeah. know, literally trying to kill yourself, you're going to take right, obviously. feeling flatlined. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, neuroscience is showing we can move past that. We can help people feel more and, and do more. And, and, you know, I think that's going to be the future is getting more people to understand the pieces of their their mental health disorders and what they can work on so they can feel more alive and and have those chances because what you're talking about too in the agoraphobia example as that person's walking they're also creating these pathways to be able to approach that mall yeah, exactly they're also it just works they're on, one like getting a physical release plus right. physicality right. and yeah i mean it works on so right. many different levels and when you think about in this youngest generation how many schools are cutting gym classes yeah 
And it, it kills me. And how I many people that. can't go outside? Right. Your kid can't play outside. It's a, it it, is, it's going to contribute to poor mental health. It really, I mean, when I see what schools are doing, I mean, they're, they're cutting art, which is a great form of expression, and they're cutting, um, yeah, phys ed. Yeah. And which, music. Right. Which, I mean, so you've got three things which are such <laughs> huge linchpins of mental and physical health. Mm-hmm. And, and, there are also linchpins of academic performance. I mean, there's, mm-hmm. a, there's a bunch of data now that shows that at least, at least I know the data on, on art and, um, actually it's art, music and exercise. Mm-hmm. It all increases test scores. All of it. Yeah. So, right. so the notion that, you know, like a, you know, a district needs to get the optimal scores for optimal funding. Mm-hmm. Um, so they need more like STEM or STEAM. Uh, you know, well, STEAM is better, but you know, all just STEM and then we'll cut the, you know, the, the music, the art and the, the physical, anything involving physicality, it's just so counterintuitive to me and contradictory to the goals that they're trying to achieve academically in the school and for the kids. You know, it's like yeah. you're taking away three of the most astonishingly constructive coping mechanisms and, and, you know, like skill building mechanisms and, and channels and, and of outlet of creativity and expression and connection. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, yeah, it's, 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 it's not a good scenario. And it's not. like, I understand that the, the school districts are really strapped across the country right now and they've right. got to allocate funds. I, I just wonder about the decisions about, you know, like pulling funding from those things and what the long term, we don't know, but what the mm-hmm. long term implications are going to be in terms of our kids' ability to flourish. It's just, it makes me really nervous. I agree. I definitely agree with that. Yeah. So you, um, once you're, you're shifting gears and, uh, you go to a place where actually you, you at, I guess you dropped out of college. I was, I was in and out of college for right. four years. I didn't drop out of college once I made that decision to start, you know, working on the bipolar disorder. I was right. still in college and, and finishing it. Right. And um, what were you majoring? In psychology. Right. So I had this idea my last year of college that uh, when I was in high school, there were full school assemblies on don't drink, don't do drugs, don't take your own life. Um, and don't have sex, but nobody was saying, come in and talk about how you feel. Nobody was saying, let's talk about mental health. Let's normalize mental health instead of isolate mental illness. And so I had this idea that it would be great to start doing full school assemblies, uh, based on mental health. And I researched what a lot of organizations were doing and I didn't really see anything I liked. So I started my own nonprofit organization when I was 22. Mm, wow. Um, and it was called the Youth Mental Health Awareness Movement. It just rolls off your <laughs> Um And I ran yeah, it. It's an excellent branding. Yeah. And I ran it for a year and had a, I went to American University and I had the, the PR department at American University promoting it. And so it got a lot of attention. You know, right. I got into Parade Magazine and like all these things and... uh when I graduated college, and it's weird, my birthday's in May, so whenever I give these ages, people are like, I don't understand. Like, um, when I graduated, I'm like 24, mm-hmm. and uh, the National Mental Health Awareness Campaign hired me to be their director of outreach. Uh, that campaign was started at the White House in 1999, and it was started to remove the stigma and stereotypes mm-hmm. surrounding mental health issues. And they came to me at that time and said, what do you think we should do next? And I said, you should start doing actual assemblies, like in person, someone who's had a mental health disorder talking about mental health. Mm-hmm. And then I, I ran that organization for eight years and I created a, the first youth mental health speakers bureau in the country that was focused on large scale assemblies, um, to, to help people talk about it. And, uh, 
I, you know, I wrote a book called Behind Happy Faces in 2007, um, and I created some school programs. And then in 2010, I had kind of burned out. I was traveling around 70% of the year. I was speaking. I was doing all these other things. And, uh, and for you, because you're constantly, like, you're constantly just aware of the fact right. that you've got to take care of yourself. Right. And I wasn't. Yeah. Um, and I needed a break. And uh, my, my ex at the time really wanted to join the Peace Corps. And so uh, we did. You know, we went to the Peace Corps for, um, for, you know, the two years and three months service. Yeah. Peace Corps, you don't know where you're going. Right? You're not. Yeah. They changed the laws. They changed the rules last week. Oh, really? So they're going to change that. Oh, but so you know now? You, yeah, you just get a region of the world. <laughs> okay. Um, and so, yeah, when I got back from Botswana, I thought, like, what do I want to do next? And so I went to see one of the speakers I trained, uh, and he was great. He got a standing ovation. Everybody loved it. And I thought to myself, like, I was saying that in 2002. That's not the future. You know, that might be where people are now, but what's the future? And that's when I had this idea to start creating curriculum. Because it's one thing to have a PSA. It's one thing to have an advertisement saying you should talk about how you feel. It's a whole other thing to get the tools you need to address your mental health in a classroom. Mm-hmm. It's a whole different experience if we can take a conversation about mental health and start allowing young people or even uh, people of all ages. There's actually a couple corporations interested in the curriculum as well because they're like, uh, this is a huge problem at work. So how do we address it? And I think the best way to address it is to give people the opportunity to understand that they do have the power. They have that, that human power to, to be able to change right. their lives. They don't have to be stuck in. So in how do you brand or label the curriculum in a way where people don't feel like they're raising their hand and sort of like publicly stigmatizing themselves right. when they show up at a class they really want to go to right. help them? Right. Well, I think what's what, what's interesting is in most schools, you know, obviously it's mandatory. Right. So, okay. So it's so not like, right. 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 <laughs> you don't have a, you don't, you know, I always joke with people too. My audiences are always mandatory. Right. There's very few people and maybe this will change. And it, and I've obviously seen like a, uh, a lot of students change this, but it's rare that on a Wednesday night, if there's a mental health presentation at yeah. your campus, you're that you're going to be like, hey, out. guys, do you want to go right. to the bar or do you want to check out this mental health speaker, <laughs> you know? So, yeah, I don't have to worry about that as much. But in the corporate level, you would. You definitely yeah. do. Yeah, yeah, it'll be an interesting sort of like uh, challenge or experience well, trying to move into that. But that's why I named the company the Human Power Project. Right. As opposed to the mental health, mental healthily, mental stuff thing. <laughs> like, you right. know, you want it to empower people. You want it to be like, hey, I do have the the capabilities to, to change those. Yeah. And it's, it's such an interesting lesson also, um, you know, sort of shifting gears a little bit and looking at okay, now you're actually building a new organization and mm-hmm. future and sort of changing, building a new direction. Not really a new direction, but you're kind of like trying to take things into the next iteration the future of what you see education in the spaces and um you know it's funny like you know what um scott harrison did with charity water popped into my mind because mm-hmm. it's like he went into a space where he came out of you know the he came out of the world of being a club kid and a club promoter and he understood the need to actually create a brand that was really appealing to the community who really most needed it. Mm-hmm. You know, so he, he creates Charity Water. It's this gorgeous visual brand and like calls it Charity Water rather than, you know, like the project for, you know, rewatering, you know, <laughs> right. towns in the, you know, in Africa. Um, and so like you're kind of, I don't know whether it's deliberate or not, but you're kind of really doing the same thing with the, 
the way that you're actually sort of like branding and naming and building what you're doing now, where it's sort of like, okay, how can I actually create, you know, create a, a, a way to interact with this brand mm-hmm. um, that feels really accessible and enticing to people and so that they potentially want to move into it of their own choice and also even in school. You know, they're mm-hmm. just completely cool. Um, yeah. embracing first the brand because it's, it's a cool name and then, mm-hmm. um, the curriculum and the experience and the learning that goes along with it. Right. I think, like so much is about lowering barriers to participation. Well, and messaging matters. Yeah. You know, the messaging surrounding mental illness is constantly dominated by the news showing these right. mass murders horrible, horrible or, you know, look, I've been turned down from some of the biggest talk shows in this country because I'm doing well. Hmm. You know, when, right. even when my book came out in 2007, it was, well, what kind of story do we have? You're doing well. And so I'd always lose the spot to the mom who killed or drowned her kids in a bipolar rage or, you know, the, the, the concept I think from the producers was, well, this is what mental illness is. If this guy's okay, we probably didn't have anything. Yeah. And I just feel like, uh, if you show more people doing well, it gives the person who's hiding. And it gives the person who's really fearful the chance to actually want to come forward and want to talk about it and not be stuck in this mentality of, well, I know what this mental health presentation is going to be about. It's going to be about how terrible these things are as opposed to the the biggest thing that makes the human species different is that we do have the ability to adapt. We do have the ability to rewire our brains and, and change right. these things. And, and to ref- we have the ability to reflect. We have like the, the ability mm-hmm. to notice our state, mm-hmm. which is really unique to us. And that's mm-hmm. like, that's the precursor of being able to respond to your state. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that is a game changer that most people actually ignore. <laughs> oh, yeah. They ignore or look, you know, our, the, this world is tough. You're either so distracted right. or, you know, to be honest, Sometimes having the ability to be aware of your state is a privilege in, in some ways. You know, uh, there's a lot happening in this world, even right now, where you're like, in some parts of this world, could you really sit there and say, like, this is my state, like, I can change it? Or are you just worried about getting food? Yeah. Or are you just no. worried about getting water? Absolutely. You know? Yeah. No, I guess I'm really, I'm, I'm thinking of sort of like, you know, Western. Like, basically, right. if you're somebody who has the ability to be listening to this conversation right Right. (laughs) you're that person yeah you know so it's almost like a call to action to say you know like yeah zoom the lens out every once in a while well and understand that the future is going to be based in understanding our brains a lot more we've learned more about the human brain in the last five years than we did in the thousands before and we learn more about the brain all the time and another issue is even when learning about the brain, the messaging is off. You know, if I go in and just talk about, you know, all the parts of the brain and everything else, it's not as exciting as a human power. You have this power to, to really embrace what you're doing and, and make a difference in your life. Yeah. So when you think about the work that you're doing now, um, what is it about it that lights you up? I still think there's the 17-year-old in me that grabbed the teacher and took him out into the hallway and said, we're going to we're going to talk about this. And I still think that having that opportunity to uh, shed light on, on this issue and, and now give other people the, the chance to talk about their own struggles, to talk about their own ways and to create their own past. That's the, that's the best feeling you can have to, to know that, 
to know that it came from a place of such turmoil and so many days where I didn't even think I could, would make it through to get to a place where you're able to reach so many other people with that message and know that they're, they're having a chance and an opportunity to get out there is, is really something I'll never, never take for granted. Mm. Yeah. So the name of, uh, the name of this project is Good Life Project. Mm -hmm. Um, it's so fascinating having these conversations because I had these longstanding questions that I kind of explore, mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, your average person who just kind of lives in that you know, everyday life, um, you know, when they sort of think about what is a good life, you know, a set of stuff that they think about. But then when you have somebody who struggles um, with some sort of mental health disorder or mm -hmm. some sort of physical disability mm -hmm. or some sort of chronic illness or pain, you know, I think it's so interesting when you, you explore the question, well, well, can that person live a good life and how good mm -hmm. and what does it take to do that? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so it's so interesting to have conversations like this. So if I turn that question back to you, you know, like to you, what does it mean to live a good life? I think for me, living a good life is, is not repeating the same negative patterns or the same ineffective patterns I've had. You know, we all have our own, our own path, paths in life for sure. And I think the best thing about the, the life that I consider that's good for me is that I've been able to change those things, is that I've really been able to grow. And that once you start doing that, that there really doesn't have to be an end to it. You know, we can all find ways to 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 stop these these ineffective negative patterns in our lives and develop really effective fulfilling amazing ones beautiful thank you so much thank you man yeah. it's great chatting hey guys thank you so much for tuning into this week's conversation with ross um i i really learned a lot um it's it's so powerful to hear somebody sort of share their very raw story and how they've moved through it and um and give me new language and a new lens to really understand um, how to relate to people who may be going through things that I haven't viscerally experienced and, and, um, and try and understand how to, how to best support them. So if you found this episode valuable, if you know anybody else who you think really might benefit from it, you know, please feel free to share it, let other people know. And if you enjoyed it, I'd so appreciate it if you would just take a few seconds, jump over to iTunes and share your support um, with an honest review. And, um, and as always, if you're curious about what's going on with Good Life Project, with the bigger things that are happening with us, then just head on over to goodlifeproject.com and check out what we've been going on. Wishing you a fabulous rest of the week. I'm Jonathan Fields, signing off for Good Life Project. <laughs>